I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Joan Ryan didn't set out to be a sports writer, and then she became one who impacted the business. She made a difference in the 1980s as one of the first women to cover sports as a newspaper writer in Orlando and San Francisco. And she made an impact in the 1990s as author of the book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, about the physical and mental toll in gymnastics and figure skating. It has often been hailed as one of the top sports books of all time. I've always had a lot of respect for Joan's work. It's a thrill to have her as a guest to talk about her career experiences. Well, Joan, thanks for joining us on Press Box Access. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be here. I'm really excited about hearing about your career. I, you know, I don't recall us meeting personally back in the day. I, I'm sure somehow we crossed paths, but I have, was always aware of your work, always admired it and uh, enjoyed reading your stuff. So this is a real uh, treasure for me to, to have you on as a guest. Oh, that's that's really nice. I mean, I, I love the whole idea of this podcast because, you know, every sports writer, I mean, every journalist, but I think sports writers in particular, because of the you know, sort of nomadic uh, life we live, you know, you're traveling here, traveling there, and you're with other really interesting, quirky, odd ducks. Damaged, damaged, damaged people. <laughs> exactly. So it's so fun to, to spend time with all of them and to hear their stories. So, and like you, um, you know, I'm out of the business now and I, I don't miss a lot of it, but I just miss hanging out. Right, right, exactly, right, right. Yep. What do you miss in particular about hanging out with sports writers? Well, you know, the, the sense of humor. I mean, I'm not a naturally funny person. So I love just sitting there, having my cocktails after the game. And, you know, of course, it's the best part of it. Best right, part of right. being a sports writer is after the game and you have your cocktails. And and just the sardonic, cynical, you know, <laughs> horrible things people will say that are so freaking funny. And you're just entertained. And and the stories just spin out, spin out. And there are no better gossips than, oh, yeah. than oh, yeah. journalists and sports writers. And so you hear all kind you're like, what? Are you yeah. kidding him? I know, exactly, right. Well, you've had a well-rounded career uh, as a journalist and not just in sports. Uh, you know, you've you've written five books, including Little Girls and Pretty Boxes, which is one of the all-time great sports books, and we're going to get into that. And you won a boatload of awards. Uh, I, I have to say, you're the first guest on this show who can say they won the Edgar A. Poe Award. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I thought, like everybody does, it's it's you know, Edgar Allan Poe, right. and it's not. It's a famous journalist from back, back in the day. Right. So, you know, I think most people think, you know, I got it for writing mysteries or something. But Well, I never her. won any kind of Poe Award, although I will say <laughs> that, you know, though the real Edgar Allan Poe could relate to me because I covered a lot of NFL games in Cincinnati and Cleveland. So, you know, all the dark okay. times we had there. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you've done a lot of things behind a keyboard, but, you know, we're going to take you back to your days in sports, you know, back in the 1980s and the 90s, primarily in San Francisco. But I kind of wanted just to start 
at the start, you know, let's go back to uh, to Florida, your days at the Orlando Sentinel. How did you become the first female sports writer at the Orlando Sentinel? I think in what, 1983? Yeah, it was probably 83. And I was, uh, you know, right out of college. I mean, I graduated in 81 and, you know, had an easy time getting a job at the Orlando Sentinel. You know, I think I graduated on Saturday, started at the Orlando Sentinel on Monday. Nice. Because I wanted to be an editor. I wasn't a writer. And the reason I wasn't a writer was that I was painfully, painfully introverted. And really? it doesn't show. I know. So anyway, I'm at the Orlando Sentinel, very, very introverted, loving being in the office, doing my little work. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to move up in the newspaper business, I better have some writing experience, you mm-hmm. know, it, you know, under my belt. And so, so you were a copy editor at the start. I was a copy yeah. editor at the Orlando Sentinel and, uh, you know, it was, and I was a copy editor for what they called the little Sentinels, you know, those sort of sectionalized, um, parts of a paper where it's Volusia County and this County. And so I had one of the counties and, you know, you're writing about the, you know, rubber chicken circuit and, yeah. No sports. It was right. all all news. So I just thought, well, you know, I thought that the most fun thing to write about would be sports. So I mentioned this to a colleague one day, you know, someday, you know, I'd like to maybe, you know, try my hand at writing and, you know, maybe write sports. Well, like within a week, the editor of the paper. Did you ever meet Dave Bergen? Yes. He was like kind of this legendary editor who was a total nut job, but really great editor and very progressive. And so he heard about this young woman on the, you know, little Sentinel desk who wants to write sports. All of a sudden I was in the sports section as a copy editor again. And then they set me out to do a story here, a story there. And it was traumatic for me, you know, to go into the, you know, Tampa Bay Buccaneers locker room and, you know, different, different things like that. But, you know, you do it. And after a while, you know, you kind of say, this is kind of more interesting <laughs> than sitting at a desk all day. Yeah, you know? right? So, so that's how I ended up being a sports writer. And I always expected I would go back to news. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't for 20 years, practically, maybe 18, I don't know how long it was, because of one of the incidents I had in a locker room. Right. And we're going to talk um, about that. Yeah. 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 So that happened, um, you know, I was maybe two years into, I mean, not even a year and a half into being in the sports section and I still hadn't covered a lot of games. And because I was low man on the totem pole, you know, I'm getting the sidebars. Um, so the only pro team we had in Orlando at the time, you know, for five minutes was the USFL. Right. The old United States Football League from the 1980s. Yeah. And this this is like, yeah. I think, and we're going to lo- talk about this in March of 1985. You're okay. At, you're at a game between Orlando and the Birmingham, let's see. Stallions. Oh, yes. The Birmingham Stallions. Because you always want a football team named the Stallions. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, right. So you're this young, introverted, shy woman in this football world, this, you know, this male-dominated sports scene, and you have to go into the locker room here. What what the hell happened? So 
I'll back up just a little bit. I'm sitting in the press box, you know, of old Orlando Stadium, you know, which was sort of like what the Oakland Coliseum is now, you know, just or what Candlestick Park was. And you're sitting there and I know by halftime what my sidebar is, which is about um, Joe Cribs, because he was the one NFL player, I think, on their team. Yeah, the running and back. He, right. Running back, you know, very good NFL player. And he broke his wrist or something um, by halftime. So I go up to the PR guy for the Birmingham Stallions and say, look, you know, I just have to interview Joe Cribs. You know, can you bring him out of the out from the locker room? You know, can I interview him outside? And um, I mean, he was just dismissed me. No, nope, you know, that's where you, you know, if you're going to do this, you know, blah, 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 he's going to be, you know, you just got to go in with everybody else. And I'm like, oh, so the whole second half, because I hadn't been in too many locker rooms. And like, if I went into the Bucks locker room, it was like, there were so many people like you could just mm-hmm. kind of hide. Right. Right. And they were pros, you know, more pros than the USFL. So I, you know, my stomach's churning through the whole second half and, you know, <laughs> my luck, you know, I go into the, the elevator, go down and I'm the first reporter. Not that there were hordes of reporters covering At the USFL, the right, USFL right, right. in Orlando. Um, so I was the first one at the door and I push open the door. And as it turned out, Melissa Isaacson was right behind me. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who, you know, was at, was at Chicago for a long time. Great writer, she was yeah. working for Coco Today, I believe, Gannett paper. And so I push it open. And as, and Todd, you, I'm sure you'll remember this, as is the case in so many, so many of those old locker rooms, where the door was that you entered on one side were the lockers and on the other side were the showers. So you're walking right into this stream of, of naked guys going back and forth from the locker to the showers and back again. And it's just totally and, chaotic. After a football game, it looks oh, like a plane has crashed. It's, yeah. <laughs> and if it's, the, if it's the road team, they're trying to get the hell out of there, racing around. It is, it right. is crazy. Crazy. It's crazy. And they're taking the tape off, throwing it, you know, throwing their jerseys and their jock straps and, you know, everything's flying through the air. And so I walk in and there was a couple of seconds of, you know, they're just yelling at each other and laughing and doing that. And then like silence, <laughs> like total silence. And then this huge eruption. Everybody's looking at me. They're yelling at me, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, and then bullying me, you know, like the whole thing. And of course your brain just sort of shuts down because your heart is beating. So, uh, and then I feel something on my ankle and it's starting to move up my leg. I had a skirt on, move up my leg. And I look down and, you know, there's a, a row of lockers right next to me on my right side and a bench in front. And there was a, Big old football player sitting on that bench, bent over with one of those long-handled razors they use to take cut off all of the tape tape Mm -hmm. around his ankle. So he was doing that, and he decided to take the handle of that razor and start moving it up to the hem of my skirt. (laughs) And so at that (laughs) point, and I'm just saying, you know, where is Joe Cribbs? Where is Joe Cribbs' locker? I just needed to talk to Joe Cribbs. And when that happened, then I just was like, I yelled at them. I don't even know what I yelled. I just yelled at them. I was like, what are you doing? And I turn around and I leave the locker room. And standing in the doorway was 
what looked like an assistant coach because all the coaches had these red V-neck sweaters on. Mm-hmm. And um, I walked and the guy was laughing. He just thought this was the most entertaining thing he had seen in a long time. So I find the PR guy and he goes and gets Joe Cribs, right? You know, and I, I'm sure I asked him some bad questions. He gave me some bad answers. And I went up to the, you know, went up to the uh, press box and probably wrote a really bad sidebar. But it was at that moment, you know, that realization of, you know, because I was so accepted at the Orlando Sentinel, that sports department, all the guys in that sports department just totally embraced me and took care oh, of me and great. advised yeah. me and mentored me. Um, that I still, I always was expecting there would be acceptance Mm -hmm. and I didn't really, um, you know, it didn't sink in how huge a change it was for men in sports to have females covering them. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's it's the 1980s, you know, and sports reflects culture and it was, it was, it was different. It you know, was, much it was different. different. Yeah. I mean, and you I, think about it. I mean, in the 1980s, you had like Dave Kingman in baseball. Oh. He, he mailed a rat to Susan Fornoff at a Sacramento oh, Bee. Mailed a damn rat to her. Oh, I know. It was horrible. It was horrible. The locker room incidents, you know, the, you know, the great Lisa Olson and what she endured and others. Right. Melissa, Melissa Lutke. I mean, she was before me. But I must say I was naive about it. Mm. And I just thought, well, you do your job and you do your job. And also I was in Orlando. So it wasn't like I was running into other women, you know, who have gone through this. So it became very, very clear to me that the men, the athletes didn't want me. I mean, made it so clear. They really, really didn't want me there. And that's when I decided I was going to be a sports writer. Really? I mean, I, yeah, I decided then, like, I'm sticking around. Even if I didn't like it, I said, I'm not leaving. Like, they are not going to chase me away. It's like, I was introverted and shy, but really competitive, <laughs> super competitive. And I was like, you know, screw you guys. I am not leaving. And that's when I really committed myself to being a sports writer. That's amazing because, you know, if you had said, this is this is not for me, I'm out of here. That would have been totally understandable, not yeah. to condone what was happening, obviously, but just a reaction like that would have been yeah. to flee would have been, yeah, of course, get the hell out of here. This is right. horrible. You take the opposite tact. I'm not leaving. Well, and I think to have to like probably all the women and I would think most of the guys, too. I mean, to be a journalist, you have to be competitive. You just do, mm-hmm. you know, and it may not be on the surface. You know, I don't look like a competitive, per- you know, but inside. And I think most of us grew up playing sports if we're sports writers. And so you honed that competitiveness. And so I always joke, but it's kind of joking on the square that, you know, I built an entire, an entire career on bitterness and resentment. (laughs) 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 That was my secret to success. (laughs) So you're, so you're, you're introverted and shy. You stumble into becoming a sports writer Two years into that, you have a horrible incident uh, (laughs) involving football players. And your answer to that is, I'm not leaving. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in. I'm I'm all in in now. (laughs) (laughs) And you were. You you moved to the West Coast in 1985 as a sports columnist for the San Francisco Examiner and and later at the Chronicle. And and that was your life, sports writing. You became a sports writer just as you intended. And not only that, but you went on to cover some major, major events, Olympics, uh, World Series, Wimbledon 
championship boxing. So when you think about that era of your life that, that, and your career as a journalist and a writer, um, what comes to mind when you think about the daily life that you led back then? Oh, my God, I loved it. I mean, I still, I never, you know, even to this day, I mean, I've never gotten over the whole locker room thing, and I always had hoped, unlike I think most sports writers, male and female, you know, I would have way preferred that there would be an interviewing room. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would level the playing field a little bit for women. I was never very comfortable doing that. But I just love, we're all very curious, right? And I just always, I love, I ended up loving sports, not for the sport so much, but because of the people, you know, everybody had a story. You know, if, if you got to that level as, a, as an athlete, you know, oh my God, how did you get there? What shaped you? You know, what sets you apart from everyone else? Because it's more than talent. There's a lot of talented athletes out there that never make it. And was so, there a, was there a coach or an athlete early on that you dealt with that kind of hooked you like this is this is really interesting. This is not what I expected. Something that yeah. you recall from those days? Well, you know, I I must say it was you know, the 87 88 89 Giants that totally won me over. I was smitten by those teams in that, you know, it was the, you know, Will Clark, Mike Kruko, Bob Brenly, uh, Kevin, Kevin Mitchell, Mitchell yeah, uh, right, Dave right. Derbecki. I mean, they're, the characters were so much larger than life, just larger than life that you would never run out of things to write about ever. And you got to really observe them close up day in and day out. And that's one of the great things about covering baseball. You know, I mean, I was mm-hmm. a columnist and I covered the, you know, I would go to the A's, I'd go to the 49ers, I'd go to the Warriors, but I really loved that era of Giants teams. And um, and part of it, they were funny. They were so irreverent. You just never knew what to expect when you showed up. So every day was so different and truly entertaining. I mean, I was always entertained. And what I really loved was coming from a family of six kids. You know, we were all very close, tight family. And I'm the one who left. Right. I went across the entire country by myself and my pack and I'm a total pack animal and my pack was there and I was like horribly, horribly lonely Mm. um, for for a while. And I totally get like, you know, when a little, you know, wolf cub is left out, you know, and they howl. I mean, I was close (laughs) to the howling, you know, and I'd walk into that clubhouse and see the just the tight bonds these weirdo guys had with each other. Such, it was such, it should have been a really fractured clubhouse, you know, because you had, you know, black players, urban black players, you had Southern whites like Will Clark, and you had the, you know, the carousers when they went on the road and the God squatters, you know, what we called God squatters, like the Mm -hmm. super, super Christian John Birchers, Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, right, this right. is this should never work, never work. <laughs> and they loved each other. And I would go into that clubhouse and just long for that kind of connection that they had with each other. Because it was like and a dysfunctional family. like Dysfunctional you know. family that, I mean, they just loved each other, even when they got on each other. And they had such exuberance about what they did. And they were so 
funny. I mean, every time you went in there, you just listened to him and you, you just not, you, you wouldn't want to have to leave. Can I just stay in here with you guys? You know? <laughs> so how did, how did they treat you as a, as a female sports writer? Any differently? Did you have problems with them at all? Um, with a couple of players. I mean, some of the real Christian guys, I mean, fairly politely, you know, would say, well, I'm not going to talk to anybody, you know, while there's women in here, you know, whatever. But then the other guys would set him straight and say, you know, come on, don't do that. Now, my one thing that I do remember, um, to your point, is, you know, there were always, you know, some, especially if it was a new player who didn't know me and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, what are you doing? And certainly the visiting clubhouses could be, you know, a train wreck. But when, as a writer, you're showing up day in and day out, you know, they know you're in there, you're doing your job. Right, right. So they get to know you, right. You get to know you. So one day I wrote this column about, you know, because the older guys, the Krukos and Brenleys and, and Dravecki's, and, you know, they were aging out and they led the clubhouse. So I wrote a column like, who's going to be the next leader of this clubhouse? Because they were still a good team. So, you know, I wrote and, you know, talked to everybody. And it's Robbie Thompson, who was the spunky second baseman, but very, very mature, very mature for for his age and very well respected. And of course, Will Clark, who was this screechy, you know, he was a great player, you know, the heart and soul of the team, but he, he was, was kind of tough to deal with. I recall. Yeah. He, yeah, he could be. And, and he just, you know, but he was like a little kid, you know, he just loved playing baseball. And so I wrote, you know, Robbie Thompson, you know, would be Will Clark, you know, as great as he is, can be very excitable and, you know, say things that, Maybe not so appropriate. Well, so I go into the clubhouse and now the story runs. I go into the clubhouse. The story's out. And I'm thinking it's a pretty benign story. Right, right. And I go into the, you know, walk through the clubhouse, go to the dugout. They're taking BP. (laughs) Will Clark is out on the field, catches sight of me and runs to the dugout to scream at the top of his lungs. What do you mean? I'm excitable. What are you saying? <laughs> He's proven it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I am, you know, I'm not a good enough leader. Da, 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 da. Oh, so my. I just, you know, so I was like, okay, you know, I hear you, you know, whatever. So he goes back out. BP is over, you know, and we could go into the locker room and interview players. So I go into the locker room. Well, he starts in on me again in the clubhouse. And so um, Kruko and Brenly and those guys are laughing their asses off. And so I talked to one of them, you know, right after, and I was just beaming. And, and he said, what are you smiling about? And I said, you know, that's the first time anybody yelled at me in a locker room for something I wrote, not just for who I am. Oh. And I said, I've arrived. I'm yeah. getting yelled at just like anybody else would get yelled at. Yay. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in a weird way. It was like a sign of respect in a weird yes. way. <laughs> and, and, pro- and progress. God, we've made progress. Right. This, this is, is like George Casanza like. It's the opposite, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you had the opposite reaction to sticking with sports, and now you've got the opposite That's, reaction yeah. to something you wrote. <laughs> right, right. No, it was, it was great. Yeah. And, you know, Will Clark and I, I you know, became great friends as we are to this day, but it's just, it's just so funny. And that's, what's so fun about being in that kind of environment, that kind of atmosphere. There's almost this 
intimacy that you develop with people because you're around them so much. Right. The key word, the key word is access, right? You're with them like you're all the with time. Them. Right. Exactly. And you, you get to know them and, you know, you develop these relationships that are very odd relationships because there's obviously a distance, but there are relationship that is certainly closer than if you covered politics or you covered business yeah. You know, the relationships you develop in sports are 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 different and really rewarding and rich in ways when, you know, like you wrote a lot of takeouts, you know, that you're peeling the onion. Like, who is this person really? Yeah, we're all and, playing pop psychologists, right? We're all we're all trying to do Frank DeFord, but we can't be Frank DeFord. Yeah, no, no one wants to Frank DeFord, right. <laughs> but it is interesting to find out who they really are and not just who they seem to be in a uniform out on the field. Right, right. And that's that, what I loved. Yeah, and, and, you know, you've turned that into a book, your latest book, you know, Intangibles, about team chemistry, which came out last yeah. year. Because now your your role now is actually as a, as a media consultant with the Giants, right? I think you've been been with yeah. the team for since like 2008 or something. 2008. Yeah, yeah this is my 14th season. Yeah. So and now it, you're seeing it. You're seeing it on the other side. Right. It, Which is I very know. interesting. Yeah. It yeah. is very interesting. And also one of the one of the really great things is that now I can tell players things like as a journalist, you know, you're not giving them advice. You know, you're not saying like. You know, right. What are you doing, dude? That doesn't make any sense. Whatever. Well, it always felt like you're in a lo- like when you're in a locker room or around a team like that. I always felt like I was in a laboratory, that I was watching <laughs> an experiment going on. And you know, and it is. I mean, your book is about that. You know, it's team true. chemistry. This idea that how all these different personalities and talents and beliefs outside of their sport, how do they all mix together? I know. And I was just always fascinated by that because you know sometimes it clicks. Sometimes it doesn't click at all. And um, and for you, you spent the past decade kind of looking into this idea of team yeah. chemistry. Tell us a little bit about the book project and how that came about. I really, I think it came about because of the 1989 Giants, right? Exactly, Todd. It, it definitely did. I went to, you know, having covered them and, you know, 89, for those who, who don't remember, they, you know, won the National League pennant and then the, the uh earthquake after two games <laughs> of the World Series and, you know, 10 days off. And then, you know, and then the A's just swept them. But they that was, you know, that remarkable team we were just talking about. And so 20 years later, they're having their 20th reunion out at, you know, what is now Oracle Park, you know, the mm-hmm. downtown ballpark for the Giants. And they had the big tent out back having this big reunion. So, of course, I go and because uh, I'm working for the Giants now uh, then and um and, you know, you could see it in their faces, hear it in their voices. They still loved each other. Hmm. And this was not too much after Moneyball uh, had come out. And, of course, all Michael of the front Lewis's office. Michael Lewis's book. Michael right. Lewis's, you know, right. great book. Um, and, you know, all of the front offices now, you know, had these bunkers filled with Ivy League, you know, mm-hmm. eggheads. Um, everything was analytics, analytics, and team chemistry was dismissed as just this myth. It was something that, you know, a lazy rationale for why a team, an underdog team won. Mm-hmm. So when I left the tent that night and I'm driving home and I was like, you know, there's something. There's definitely something uh, uh, beyond analytics. And But I never really thought about 
Like, well, what is team chemistry? So, you know, I, I set out, I, I didn't even know if I was going to do a book. I thought it probably could be a book, but I thought it was really going to be about the 1989 Giants. Yeah, look what happened. And that, yeah, <laughs> There goes 10 years. <laughs> yeah, there goes 10 years. And um, so I started looking into, you know, just trying to answer, does team chemistry exist? If it exists, well, what is it? And then how does it affect performance? Because why even talk about it if it doesn't have an impact on performance? Right. And 10 years later, I have this book. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book, too. I mean, I because it really taps into this idea that it's hard to quantify something like team chemistry. Yeah. But, I mean, you've got scientists and everybody else talking about it, not just athletes and coaches, because uh, not everybody believes in this idea. But no. I think, I, do you think your experiences as a sports writer, you know, formed the base of what you ended up producing as a book? Totally. Because, you know, and, and I'm wondering if, if you've, I imagine you've had the same experience and you kind of alluded to it earlier that, you know, there are some teams that just have that something going on. Mm-hmm. And then there are some teams that it just never quite works, even though they have the talent. And, you know, one of the things that I found, you know, there are certain counterintuitive things, you know, like I assumed that, you know, going out to dinner and stuff, all of that stuff, you know, created the chemistry. If you just hung out together, it created the chemistry. And now I am of the belief that when teams go out to dinner, it's evidence of the chemistry. Mm. It, it may strengthen the chemistry. I don't know, but it, it doesn't create the chemistry. The chemistry is created every moment of every day in a clubhouse. It's just this accrual. It's almost like, like a cave and it drips. And then you get those stalactites and stalagmites, like just these one drop at a time at a time that builds trust right. among the players. And yeah, there are certain key players that help that to happen, of course, you want a manager in a front office that creates a culture that's a really healthy culture of accepting people, all of that. But it's it's trust. It's building trust. And you only build trust, real trust, by your actions every single day. Mm-hmm. Because if you're this guy today and that guy tomorrow, that you can't build trust. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast Give me an example of when you were covering the team, something that you look back on now and you think that person, that player or that coach, they were great for helping to build trust. Do you do you recall anything from your days as a beat writer and columnist? Yeah. Uh, one, one thing was, and it wasn't um, another player, but it was a manager. So, and, and this is in, this is in the book. So Kevin Mitchell, you know, again, back to the eighties teams, cause that's when I was in the locker room so much, the, the clubhouse so much. Um, you know, Kevin Mitchell was an odd, odd guy. You know, he grew up 
you know, in, in San Diego. what was then called the ghetto, you right, know, right. Uh, of San Diego. And he actually belonged to a gang and he wasn't a real, and he wasn't a baseball aficionado. He was, he was just gifted. Yeah. I, uh, I got to know Kevin a little bit when he Did was you? in Cincinnati and he played for the Reds briefly. And I was working at the Cincinnati post and, and he was quite a character. I mean, very interesting yeah. guy to talk to. Right. And, and a lovely guy, you know, really lovely guy and loyal in his way. And I'll tell you two stories that illustrate this. One was, uh, and he, he got traded by the Mets and he had just won the world series in 1986 with the Mets loved that team. And he felt like the little brother, you know, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden one day he's gone. They sent him out west, west, right? Yeah. So he goes to San Diego. So he was devastated, but at least he landed in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, four months into being in San Diego, he gets traded again to the giants and he's ready to quit. Right. And Dave Dravecki is traded with him. And Dave Dravecki is one of the great humans uh, of all time. And he talks Mitchell into just show up, just show up. Don't quit baseball yet. Come with me going in a taxi. We're going to fly together. <laughs> yeah. All that. So Mitchell is still not feeling a part of the team. And so it's the first time San Diego comes to uh, candlestick park to play since Mitchell's been there. And so, you know, there's some, you know, back and forth around the batting cage and during BP and Ed Whitson, who the Padres uh, pitcher that day, is giving uh, Mitchell the business. And he says, you know, you better watch out. And, he, and Whitson had a reputation for hitting guys mm -hmm. with, yeah. with the pitch. And he said, you better watch out. You know, one's coming right in your ribs, you know, something like that. And Mitchell kind of laughs. But Kruko, who was pitching that day for the Giants, he hears this. You know, he like, I, I, I'm not liking this. Mm -hmm. So game starts. So Kruko starts the game and he has total back spasms and he's really having a hard time. Gets through the top of the first. So now the bottom of the first, Whitson goes up there. Mitchell comes up. He's the second, first guy, leadoff guy, hits a home run. So Whitson just hits. Payback, um, right. Hits him, hits, yeah, payback to Mitchell. So you know, Mitchell takes the base. He doesn't do anything. So the inning's over, and Kruko can barely walk. So Roger Craig, the manager, already has somebody coming in from the bullpen to take over, and Kruko puts up his hand, and he walks out to the mound. And Roger Craig is like, you know, what are you doing? Right, despite his back spasms. <laughs> yeah, right. back spasms. I'm taking you out. You can't barely walk. So he goes, he goes to the mound, or Mitch comes. He calls Mitch over, and he says, this is for you. Mm. And he rears back with the one pitch he has left <laughs> and he hits the Padres batter. And then he looks at uh, Mitch and Mitch nods mm -hmm. and acknowledges that, oh, man, you really had my back. And Kruko walks off the mound wow. <laughs> to do that. Wow. So that that was one way that it's like, hey, you're new. I don't really know you, but you're a giant now. Yeah. You're one on of team. us and we have your back. Yep. And then the second one, and this is such a great leadership lesson, one of, one of the great leadership lessons I, I, I've ever heard or seen. So Mitchell's sitting by his locker one day and complaining about the skipper. You know, why is he putting my, he's putting my name up on that, that lineup every day. And even, he's not checking in with me, see if I'm okay to play. 
And of course, you know, Krukel overhears this and anybody who overheard it is just like, yeah, you get paid to play every day. And if there's something wrong with you, the trainer is going to tell the manager and you're going to sit. It was yeah, like clock the most, in, dude. Yeah. The most ludicrous thing anybody had ever heard. It's like, who are you? Like, really? You know, you're being a. So Kruko, instead of just ripping into uh, Mitchell, he goes and tells Roger Craig. And he said, hey, you know, Mitch is out there. You know, he's complaining that you're not checking in with them. And and Roger Craig could have just said, well, too bad. Right. See you later. Right. Instead, he went out there. He said, Mitch, how you feeling today? And Mitchell said, well, you know, I got a little of this. I got a little of that. And Roger Craig says, Mitch, we need you in there. Everybody plays better when you're in there. We got to have we got to have you in mm. there. All right, Skip. All right, Skip. I'll play. And Roger Craig did that every single day. Really? It took two, yes, it took two minutes out of his day to go and check in with Kevin Mitchell to get the very best performance he can get out of his player. And, you know, some of the players, oh, he's coddling him. And, And Roger Craig said, if the coddling gets him to play better, I call that good managing. Right, right. He knew what button to push, right? He knew what button to push, and you have to treat them all the way they need to be treated. Right. You know, and it's no skin off Roger Craig's nose. Yeah, and there's probably a guys on the team that, that Roger just totally left alone because he knew, he, you know, to talk to them might have messed them up. They just wanted of to be course. alone. So. Of course. I know. And I thought, God, that's great that you didn't have to be like, hey, you know, just get out there. You're getting paid a lot of money. And, you know. Well, those are the types of things that you observe as a writer who is there every day, you know, and you do talk to people. And sometimes it's not even quotes. You know, you're just talking to them, getting background, learning about what is going on around here, getting some context. And if you had a good relationship, um, they would educate you. So you were accurate then, right? I mean, right, in some ways, exactly. we're just trying to, we're trying to be accurate. And uh, I think the people who understood where the writers were coming from, you know, were very helpful in that regard. They, they were. And, you know, to talk about trust, man, we had to build trust with them. If they didn't trust us, they weren't going to tell us anything, mm-hmm. anything. And also, if you did say something negative about them, as we all had to, because if they screwed up, you know, right. you're writing about it, no matter who they are, they understand that that you weren't throwing them under a bus. You were reporting on what they actually had done. And they're yeah. going to give you that um, benefit of the doubt. It's like, I trust that she's not out to get me. <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a center for the Cincinnati Bengals named Derek Burles, and Derek and I used to have these off off the record conversations about politics, and we were from different spectrums, and but we yeah. would just good naturedly, you know, get on each other about this or that, and then you know after a game, if the Bengals gave up, you know, six seven sacks, yeah. and I went to Derek <laughs> Burles for a quote, he knew I was doing my job, and I didn't mess around. I asked him what happened. Exactly. He, you know, fulfilled his obligation as, uh, you know, somebody trying to talk to the fans through the media. And we moved on. But it became something that was built away from the scenes, you know, away from the public record. And uh, I think that's uh, something that I know I treasure from back in the days because you had the time to build rapport and you had the access to build uh, that type of trust. You weren't looking for friends. You were just looking for trust. No, looking for trust. Like, I'm doing my job. You're doing your job. 
Right. And we need to trust that we each have, you know, good intention in doing that job. Well, Joan, that's a great book. And I really recommend folks check that out. Uh, Intangibles. Um, you only spent 10 years on it, Joan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't care about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, uh, but you wrote another book about trust. When you think about it, it is about trust. And it's one of the all time sports books, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, The Making and Breaking of Elite Gymnasts and Figure Skaters. Came out in 1995. And actually, it became something that directly impacted those sports. And it really became something that I'm sure changed your life in some ways, right? Yeah, I mean, it did. I had I really had no idea it would have the impact and and the longevity. I mean, I'm, I'm appalled that it's still so relevant today. <laughs> you know, you would have thought that the sport would have changed and clearly from the Larry Nasser stuff, you know, right. it, it hasn't. But um, yeah, when I was writing it, I really, uh, you know, you have your head down. I'd never written a book before. You know, I'd never written anything you know, longer than a two-part series. <laughs> and, and, I, and I thought, well, you know, nothing has taken me more than six months to do. And so maybe this one will take me eight months. And of course it took, you know, a year and a half, which is still pretty fast right. to do all of the research. How did it originate? As a series? Yeah, it was a series in the Examiner. And it, the idea came from, um, do you know Glenn Schwartz? I know of him. Glenn Schwartz, yeah. yeah. He was the um, sports editor at the Examiner. And we were just brainstorming with the, I think it was the 92 or maybe it was a 90, whatever, Olympics in Barcelona. What year was that? Was 92. It 92? 92. Yeah. yeah. So we were just brainstorming about um, ideas for stories. And, um, and long story short, we came up with an idea of writing about athletes who are the very best in the world at the Olympics before they are old enough to have a driver's license. You know, and to, again, you know, every good story starts with questions. So, you know, what does that kind of elite, rigorous, rigorous training do to bodies that are still developing and psyches that are still developing? Because mm-hmm. you had covered the Olympics, right? So you witnessed, you know, this in yeah, action. You know what? Right? I, I hadn't. I had covered uh, figure skating. I had never covered gymnastics okay. at the Olympics because, um yeah, it wasn't until 96 when I went to Atlanta that I covered a Summer Olympics. I'd covered two Winter Olympics. Um, yeah, so so the, the, the series was about gymnastics, figure skating, swimming, diving, um, and a little bit of tennis. But tennis, you know, the, the young girls in tennis had been so covered. So it was all about that. And then an agent, you know, a young agent in San Francisco came to me and said, oh, this would be a really good book, you know, and I was like, oh, God, no, you know. I don't want to ever look at it again. <laughs> and so she kept taking me to lunch and, you know, the Catholic guilt. All right. She said, just write a proposal. <laughs> so I write a proposal and I'm notoriously still horrible at proposals. And she said, just rewrite this proposal. <laughs> and then, um, and I was like, God, I really don't want to do this book, but I did, uh, you know, write, rewrite the proposal. So then she starts sending the proposal out and here's where that competitiveness comes in again. I started getting reject letters Mm. <laughs> reject after reject after reject. And I was like, all of a sudden, then I really wanted to write that book. And uh, <laughs> That was the key like, to Joan. Just, <laughs> Joan, just reject, reject me. Totally reject me. Tell me I'm never going to be able to do that. And then it's like, oh, no, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did, you know, so then I, I wrote the book, you know. 
Well, it, it delves in. It was it was an expose that was groundbreaking, diving into the training habits, the the abuse, the you know just the dark side of the oh, underbelly of sports, yeah. and it became a phenomenon. You I mean you were on Oprah, sixty Minutes, Nightline, Today Show. You did the whole circuit. The yeah. book became a phenomenon. I mean, you know, even now it's still considered Sports Illustrated named it one of the top 100 sports books of all time. And it was reissued twice in 2000. Twice, yeah. And as you mentioned, in 2018. When it originally was published, it did lead to some changes with like USA Gymnastics, right? I mean, they, they, they had a, a wellness program bit. and... Supposedly. You know, right. So what happened? How did this cause all this attention and yet... 18, you know, 2018, this Larry Nassar scandal happens. What happened in this in ensuing years, you think? Clearly nothing. <laughs> Clearly nothing. There was one thing that had happened, which was they had a woman on staff who uh, studied. Uh, she was a gymnast, former gymnast. And, you know, she was sort of in the medical field studying. Nancy Thies Marshall, I believe. Or? Nancy yeah, Thies yeah, Marshall. Right, yep. Yeah. And so. She was the only one affiliated with USA Gymnastics who who truly would even talk to me. You know, I was the devil. Hmm. And so we talked about things. She recognized that everything I was writing was, you know, spot on and it was accurate and all of that. Um, and so they went to her after the book came out and said, let's put out a manual, you know, a, a wellness manual. So they did, so she did an, a great, a really incredible job putting all this together about eating disorders and parents and abusive coaches and, um, you know, what's called the athlete triad, you know, where you're, you're so, you overexercise and you're not eating enough. So your menstruation either never starts or it stops. Your bones get brittle because you're not eating enough and, uh, you know, all kinds of things mm. happen to you because of this, you know, mm. perfect storm. And so she put out this manual and she thought she was going to be going to talk to, you know, the gyms and go to conferences. And, and you know, that lasted about, you know, six months or something. And then they stopped funding her her oh, program. Cut stopped the money. Funding her program. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so when the Larry Nasser thing happened and then nothing happened, you know, the same people were running gymnastics, nothing was done. The same coaches like the Carolis were getting rewarded. Um, everything yeah, was not, still underground. Not only rewarded, but they were being deified, right? I mean, Bella Caroli and Martha, oh. their ranch in Texas was like, that was the place you had to go was the Wonka factory, right? Yeah, it was. And parents weren't allowed at the ranch. And like how many alarm bells ring when you say parents aren't allowed at the ranch? Oh, yeah, it's distracting. It's distracting. And you're going to be too easy on them and all all the rest of it. So with 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 Caroli, you know, let's be fair. It's not just about Bella. Right. I mean, it's and it, eventually it becomes about Larry Nasser. And right. so when that news hits about the U, the former U.S. gymnastics national team doctor, you know, facing all those charges, he eventually was pled guilty to sexual assault. They had like 150 athletes, you know, provide statements at his trial. Yeah. Um, when that hit, what did you think in 2018 <laughs> when that erupted? Just fury. I mean, just unadulterated fury. Because what I thought about was, and I had stopped covering gymnastics. I wasn't writing about gymnastics anymore. And so it was 20, how many years? 23 years mm -hmm. of gymnasts 
who suffered horribly for 23 years, several generations of gymnasts suffered for 23 years that could have been saved. That should, it should never have happened. And it went on year after year after year and no one doing it. And they all, the people in charge of these girls' safety and well-being, they were the worst, they were the worst abusers because they couldn't say, after my book came out, it kind of put a a pin in the timeline. Mm -hmm. It said, at this point, whatever you do after this point you know what you're doing. Right. You know what's happening behind those gym doors. You know what's happening up at the ranch. You know how they're treating these girls because everybody knows now what's happening. So you can't deny it happening. And and so you just think like, how could they get away with this for all these years when everybody knew what was going Mm. on? Right. And, And what was really chilling was, you know, when the you know, the reissue of the book in 2018. So I wrote a new introduction to it, you know, taking into all this, you know, my mind's blown that this is all happening. And so I called Nancy Thies Marshall Mm. and I just wanted to find out, well, you know, what did she know about after all these years? You know, did she keep up with what was going on and what happened to her program? You know, because I just, you know, kind of walked away from everything. And she, I tracked her down at a Christian school up in Oregon, I think. And I called her and I said, Nancy. And uh, she said, yes. I said, this is Joan Ryan. And there was a silence on the other end of the phone. She said, I've been waiting for your call. Oh. Mm. And I said, mm. she said, I, I, I cannot believe this has happened. Anyway, we had this long conversation. And she told me everything that had happened, that they had pulled her funding and this, that, and the other thing. And I said, Nancy, I can't find the manual that you did because I can't find, you know, any of my stuff from back in that day. And so she sent me the manual so I could reference it in my um, introduction. And I'm going through the manual and I come to the page, um, uh, you you know, always somebody writes an introduction. Guess who wrote the introduction? Larry Nasser. Oh my gosh. Oh. And it was a chill oh. down my spine. I mean, talk about, you know, the fox in the hen house. He wrote the introduction about how important it was for the girls' well being and safety. Oh gosh. <laughs> I know. I was just like, wow, this is so sick. I mean, it was just such a sick, um, a sick culture. And I'm very optimistic, though, about changes because those gymnasts, more than any athlete I've ever met or spent any time with, they are so laser focused and driven Mm -hmm. about what they do. And a lot of them, you know, are now beyond gymnastics. And and as you said, that 150 of them, which I think swelled even more, I think by the time, you know, everybody kind of checked it, it was like 200 and some, you know, girls who have now, you know, come out, you know, Simone Biles among them that, you know, they've, they've had that laser focus on gymnastics and now they're shifting it (laughs) to changing gymnastics. And I can tell you, I, I don't think they will rest 
until they accomplish what they've set out to accomplish, which is reinventing how gymnastics is um, is managed and coached. Well, you, you put that pin on the timeline in 1995 with that book. And let's face it, you got a lot of blowback, too, for that book, right? Oh, I did. I did. I mean, Caroli... When the book first came out, uh, Bella Crowley, and I interviewed Bella Crowley for three hours one afternoon, late afternoon after the gym had closed in uh, Houston. And just the two of us sat in his office. And it took me a year to get him to sit down with me. And we sat down. And you could understand why those girls would run through walls for him. He is one of the most charismatic human beings I have ever been around. I mean, he just exudes, you know, he just exudes this, like, come on, let's go and energy. And I believe in you, you know, all that, all that stuff. And it was a good thing that it took me a year to get an interview with him because during that year, I was collecting story after story, after story, after story about Bella Caroli. So when I sat down with him, I just went through, you know, first story, tell me what, you know, here's what she says or the parents say, you know, what's your, what's your recollection of that? What's your rebuttal? (laughs) Yeah. Or just like, you know, what's your recollection? Did that, you know, and so I never had to be confrontational at all. I'm just asking him about all these things. So the book comes out and he tells a reporter from USA Today, he never talked to me, that I made it all up. He never, of course it's recorded, you know, but, and I was thinking like, why would he say that? <laughs> you know, the recorder's on the table. And so what has occurred to me, I mean, we had such a pleasant interaction when I was interviewing him that he walked me to my car and bent down and kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it felt like Don Corleone. The charmer. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right, so then right. I was like, okay. You know, why is he telling the USA Today reporter that I didn't talk to him? So the only thing I can think of is that he didn't connect the woman who sat across the desk with him during this pleasant interview with the woman who wrote this, you know, pretty scathing expose. Mm. And and he dropped it. You know, he didn't continue to insist (laughs) that I didn't talk to him. But that did get into USA Today, you know. Did you ever talk to him years later? Never, never, never crossed paths with him ever again. Now, I did have the, you know, lovely experience of covering the Atlanta Olympics. And of course, I was going to cover gymnastics, you know, because the book had just come out, you know, the year before and the paperback was now out. And sitting in a big press conference, the first press conference of the entire U.S. gymnastics team sitting up on the dais and taking questions and um, and I usually don't ask too many questions, but I did have a specific question that I don't remember now. And so I raised my hand, you know, to ask the question. And you could see from one side of the panel to the other, like, that's her. And it kind of went <laughs> down from one to the next to the next to the next. That's her. And so I was like the <laughs> devil incarnate, you know, with the gymnastics team. Um, so that was pretty, that was actually fairly amusing. So you had the biggest voice yes, there. Yes, yes, that's great. <laughs> I've never thought about it that way, Todd. That's, that's, I like that. <laughs> well, you put the pin in the timeline for that whole sport and the culture and, um, 
you know, I, I'm a big believer in sports reflects culture and can impact it too. You know, I mean, we are in the Me Too movement and things have changed much for the better. And I'm sure you must feel, you know, pride in being a journalist who made a mark with that. And let's think about it. You were, you were at the forefront with a lot of other women in the 1980s, late 70s, 80s, who broke down the barriers for other women's sports writers and sports media people. Um, what does that all mean to you? I mean, the fact that when you look back, you didn't spend your entire career in sports, no. but what does it mean to you that when you did focus on sports, that you had an impact on that world? You know, Todd, I mean, the older I get and the farther away I am from that, because when you're in it, as you know, like, you know, when you're covering sports, I mean, you're just immersed because you're going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And you're not stepping back and looking at yourself. You know, you're just, you're just in it. <laughs> and so yeah. you don't really. It's too, you're too busy. Yeah, you're too busy. <laughs> and you're like. Too busy, too tired. You're running. You got deadline. Yeah. It's just too much. And, you know, <laughs> and you're, there's other women doing it. And, and so you're just doing your job. Like you just don't see it as more than that. Because it takes up a lot of your time to just do what's in front of you. Much less be thinking about anything else. So now that I'm farther down the road and, you know, mentoring, you know, young women, I am, you know, and I'll say this. I mean, I'm really proud, really, really proud that I was a part of that wave. I'm really proud that I didn't walk away when it would have Mm. been very easy to walk away. I'm really proud that I, you know, stuck my neck out and, and wrote Little Girls in Pretty Boxes because it was controversial. I wasn't really aware how controversial it would be. But, to you know, it's it's spending a career, and this is why it's so great to be a journalist. If you choose to use your platform the way most of us do, is the greatest part of being a journalist is that you get to stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. You get to speak, you, you know, for people who nobody listens to. And when you can look back on your career and you can point out that, you know, there was, you know, this, 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 and this, and most of the time it's small things, you know, you, you know, you write about, you know, some, some guy who's gotten cheated or, or somebody, you know, something has happened to them and they're just that little voice that all of us are in our real lives. But as a journalist, you get to, you can choose to do something about it. And so I'm really proud that I made the choices that I made. Well, you certainly had an impact and outside of sports too. I mean, you know, your, your series on the amputees in the Iraq war won the Poe award. You did great column work, you know, at the Chronicle Metro columns and features. You've written five books. Um, you've had quite the career. And then those 20 years or so in sports, again, you were, you were part of the scene who, Made a difference, you know, and that's really cool. Well, Todd, I love the fact that you've researched all of this and you know all of this. That's a really, really wonderful thing. And number two, you know, just to allow me to to remember and to talk about it, you know, it makes it makes my day. I'm going to have a really good day. I'm going to be beaming for the rest of the day. Nobody's going to know why I'm beaming, but I really appreciate having me on. I really appreciate it, Todd. It's meant a lot to have you on the, on Press Box Access, Joan. I really appreciate your time and uh, best wishes to you and your family. Thanks. You too, Todd. 
Thanks for listening to PressBox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando and our audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.